KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Coronavirus cases are surging to record levels across much of the country. Younger people now account for many of these new cases. Doctors are starting to see long-term damage even in people who have had mild cases. Some scientists now believe the virus becomes aerosolized and lingers in the air for quite some time. And the administration is pressuring schools to open in the fall. At the time of this recording, there have been more than 3 million confirmed cases in the U.S. and more than 133,000 people have died. And Dr. Fauci says some states have opened too quickly. Dr. Chris Johnson is an epidemiologist at Temple. I reached out to her and asked her to walk us through all of these new developments. Dr. Johnson, thank you for being with us. We have a lot of territory to cover here, from how it spread to who's getting it to the long-term damage it can cause. There's been a lot of back and forth this week about how it spread. A group of 239 scientists from around the world wrote an open letter basically accusing the WHO of being less than truthful about airborne transmission and asking it to consider evidence that the coronavirus can be aerosolized. The WHO responded a few days later with a report that says airborne transmission cannot be ruled out. What's your opinion on that? What do you think? So I would hesitate to use the word accuse. I think it's just kind of redirecting their attention to the amount of evidence that has mounted in the recent months. I do agree with the scientists that the World Health Organization should update their recommendation for aerosol precautions because whether we know that it's spread through the air or not, and even though we have a significant amount of evidence, it's always best to take the most preventative, most cautious uh, route of preventing disease. And so if we go ahead and act like it is spread by aerosols, and it happens to not be, then all we've done is prevent a lot more cases than we would have before. But if we do that the other way around and just follow the current World Health Organization policy, we're at risk for seeing this pandemic continue to accelerate as it has over the past few months. Why is there now a belief, or or I guess why are scientists now leaning toward the possibility that this may be uh, aerosolized or spread through the air like this? So in epidemiology, we have what are called natural experiments, and that's whenever it's not ethical to expose people to things like a virus, but we just kind of see how things are distributed and how people get infected. So in a lot of what we call super spreader events, so when people spread disease to 5, 10 plus people, that's a super spreader event. A lot of those, whenever they're analyzed, people can't, people outside of that 6, 8, 10-foot radius around people who are singing or talking are getting infected. And the common thread in most of those super spreader events are that they are in either cramped quarters or in rooms that don't have good ventilation. And so that's where the aerosol theory really holds a lot of clout because the longer that, for example, in that choir practice where a person spread disease to 52 different people, the longer that person was there, the more, and they were singing, the more viral particles were in the atmosphere and other people were moving around in that air that that person had been in. And so that really lends a lot of credibility to the aerosol theory. Do we know then at this point if, if it is aerosolized? Because in the beginning, they thought it was larger droplets that fell to the ground rather quickly. Um, and, and so now they're saying 
I guess these are smaller droplets, right? So they can spread further. Is is that the is that the the belief here? Well, it's not only that they can spread further, which, yes, is true, but also that they're so tiny that they can linger in the air for a while. So we've kind of seen a progression in what we've learned about how these viral particles can linger in the air, because initially we thought it was just droplet. And then there was a new study that came out after that one that said um, that those viral particles could linger in the air for 8 to 15 minutes, which is not great, but, you know, we could deal with that. Well, now it's looking like it can linger in the air for hours, which is something that measles does. So it's not unheard of, but it's something that we kind of had to build up evidence to be able to come come to that conclusion on. So we've seen this evolution in what scientists have learned about the potential for coronavirus to be shared or spread by aerosols. When you say hours, can you are we talking two hours here or... We talking four, five, six hours. I'm not sure of the exact time frame that has. I'm not sure of the the confidence interval, or what that what they say that exact time frame is, but it's well beyond an hour. For example, there was a person who attended one a family that attended one church service, and the person who sat in the pew two hours later ended up getting coronavirus, and it was likely because of viral particles that were in the air still at that point. So we are seeing multiple hours, but I'm not sure what the evidence show that that confidence interval is. Have we determined, have scientists been able to determine how long these particles, um, I guess, remain infectious? I know there, you know, in the beginning there was, well, it can live on this surface for this long and that surface for that long. Do we have a better idea now about that? I think we're still erring on the side of caution with those estimates. So you'll remember in the beginning, we said that it could be nine days, and then we saw more things that were closer to three days. So that's probably about the same time frame that we're thinking for these aerosols. But by three days, obviously, even those tiniest particles should have dropped um, to the ground. That's a long time. It is a long time, and it it but it explains a lot about how people are getting coronavirus whenever they've been wearing a mask and they've been so careful. If you just have happened to share the same space that someone inhabited a couple hours before that was infectious, I mean, that's going to be a lot more opportunity to come into contact with coronavirus particles. Then are the masks we're wearing right now, are they effective? Because we've been told, I mean, basically what they do is if you have it, the masks stop you from spreading it, but they might not necessarily prevent you from breathing it in, right? Right. So do we need to change um, that? Yeah. No, I think if everyone is wearing a mask, then we are still going to see a lot less of these particles floating around in the air and a lot less opportunity for those particles to be lingering in the air for hours for people to be infected and have no idea where that infection potentially came from. But um, some data show that if you sneeze or you cough really hard through a cloth mask, some of those particles can still get through. So if you are actively sneezing or coughing, you probably shouldn't be going out anyway, regardless of whether you have a mask. Right. I remember when I first spoke to you a couple of months ago, and that was when, in the very beginning, when we were basically being told to stay six feet apart, I remember you said, 
you said suggested 10 feet apart. Um, and then I said 27 feet. <laughs> <laughs> so we're up to 27 feet apart? <laughs> yes, we are. Um, well, again, remember, I said 27 feet if people are actively like coughing and sneezing. So six to 10 feet, as long as everybody's wearing a mask, is much safer. But, uh, of course, still not foolproof, especially given what we've learned about potential for aerosols. Now, if you're outside, you're a little bit safer even there because by being outside, obviously, there's really good ventilation. There are breezes blowing through. But still, I mean, even if you're going outside for a walk on a frequently used path, you should still be wearing a mask for the benefit of people who are going to be biking and running and walking around you. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I a lot of people, you know, gyms are closed. So a lot of people are outside exercising and walking. And I always have this and I I battle with not I don't want to be paranoid, but I want to be safe. But yet when I pass somebody, even if I'm 10 feet or more away from them and they're running or breathing heavily, I find myself thinking, oh, no, <laughs> am I breathing in? You know, am I breathing in their COVID if they happen to have it? I mean, I, as an epidemiologist, I'm definitely walking around most of the time going, is this the time that I get infected? So, um, but I I think having that fear is a little unhealthy. So just taking every precaution that you can, making sure that you're getting six or 10 feet away from people is really going to not only prevent the likelihood of your getting infected with COVID, but also help your anxiety, which you're probably on the walk for anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you really do. I think a lot of people are battling with this, yes, this mental health kind of exercise in staying safe, but not letting it overwhelm you. Yeah. And I can definitely say that even us as public health professionals, even though we know the science behind it, it's still nerve-wracking, especially as you start to see the science evolve and see things like the aerosol come out. And just, I was thinking this morning about being packed into like a rush hour train and how I would never do that now. And I mean, given that coronavirus was in the United States for so much longer than we knew about in the beginning, it's like, that's a miracle I didn't have it already. It is a particular problem indoors, as you mentioned, um, and it has to do with air circulation. I was thinking about it. There was a story out of China. This was, I think, back in March, how there were people at a restaurant. They didn't come into contact with each other, but they all got it. Um, and they think through the they ventilation. Were all near, yeah. Yep. They were all near the, I want to say, the intake vent for the air conditioner. So it was actually pulling all of the particles in the room by their tables. So that makes me wonder, though. Then there's been talk about, okay, we need better filters, we need ventilation systems, but if it's just sucking kind of infected air past everybody to get it into the ventilation system, does that even do us any good? Does it do us more harm than good? So in places where the intake, the air intake is well above where people are, you know, whenever they're kind of in the vaulted part of a roof, then it probably is helpful. But... I personally, again, as a public health professional, am not eating inside anywhere for a very, very long time. Outdoors is more safe if you just feel like you must get out of the house and have somebody else cook your food. Mm -hmm. I understand that compulsion, um, but I would always err on going someplace that has a patio that is also social distancing the tables. So basically, no indoor dining before we have a vaccine. Right. Yeah. 
you know, a lot of people are itching to get back to normal. And, I, you know, we're seeing these huge spikes in cases in several southern states, which Dr. Fauci's called alarming. We've seen hospitals now are reaching near capacity and young people are being blamed for a big part of this spread. Um, they, you know, in a lot of cases, we see these pictures. They don't seem to be taking it seriously. They are out eating and drinking, no masks, no social distancing. Um, Florida's governor says cases are shifting radically to people in their 20s and 30s. And it's the same story in Texas, the Carolinas, Arizona, California. And I'm wondering what has changed here with with seeing more younger people get it? Because in the beginning, you know, there was this thought that even if younger people got it, they didn't really get sick. And that's kind of fed into this, I think, feeling among younger people that if they not necessarily that they're immune, but they're just not going to get sick from it if they get it. So why bother? Right. So I think that is the fault of our early information coming out and that we didn't modify that risk communication or risk messaging as we learned more as quickly as we could have. So I think that that's just kind of holdovers from whenever we were saying, oh, only the elderly and people who are immunocompromised are dying. But now, I mean, that Nick Cordero, the Broadway star, passed away after weeks of treatment for COVID-19. And We've seen people who are younger than 30 have multiple strokes, as he did. That was um, actually what led to his demise. And so, I mean, I I happen to be in that younger age group, but I don't want to win the world's worst lottery. So I, I think it's really important to emphasize to younger adults that they really can not only cause really egregious and long-lasting harm to themselves because we've the latest science now shows that people who are asymptomatic even still have lung damage that can lead to chronic complications. So there is no good scenario of being infected with coronavirus. And to that point, we've been seeing uh, in multiple states where people are having COVID parties And at least one person has already died from having these COVID parties where people put money in a pot and whoever gets COVID-19 first wins the pot. I mean, no matter how much money's in that pot, it's not worth your life. I I, That was shocking. I read that and I thought this has got to be one of those, when I first saw it, those um, urban myth kind of things. This can't be happening, but in fact it is. Yeah. And I, I was pretty alarmed because, I mean, that's so much worse than the chickenpox parties just because of how much more deadly and the long lasting damage that COVID can have. Not that chickenpox. I mean, chickenpox also has those chronic conditions that are linked to it. So both scenarios are really horrific. Um, but, yeah, I, I think we keep hearing and keep repeating this rhetoric. Well, most people are fine and most people don't get hospitalized. but when it comes down to it, about one in a hundred people who are test positive are dying in the United States. And I wouldn't want to place my bet and see if I was going to be that one person. So I really hope that younger people are taking it seriously, if not only for themselves and their future well-being, but also for their parents and their grandparents and the people that are around them that are at that higher risk of dying if they become infected. One of the other things I keep hearing, too, is that people who are kind of saying that this is this is um, that it's not true that younger people, you know, that younger people are accounting for more people getting sick because they keep saying, well, you can chalk this up to more testing, that we're just finding more younger people who have it. Is is there any truth to that? 
So there hasn't been a meaningful increase in testing since probably the beginning of April. I mean, we've stair-stepped it up a little bit every week uh, to just kind of increase that ability to test folks, but not in a way that would artificially increase numbers. And a better way to determine whether it's a testing issue or an actual increase is to look at the percent positive. So in New York, they were really proud whenever, New York City, they were really proud whenever they got down to 1% um, positive rates. So 1% of all tests that they did every day were positive. What we've been seeing in states like Arizona is 25% positive. So those are, whenever you see those higher elevations of percent positives, that means that you're seeing actual absolute increases in cases, not to mention the increase in use of ICU beds and hospitalizations that have COVID-19 attached to them, as we've been seeing in all of those southern states that you listed. And, you know, scientists warned us that we would see a spike after Memorial Day, and we did. And even though some places uh, closed beaches and bars, um, because of this this spike that we have seen, do you think that we're going to see another spike in a few weeks because of the July 4th holiday weekend? I absolutely do. And I'm actually quite terrified by it because I think just based off of what I saw and the number of people that were getting together and a lot of the messaging that has been coming out at the national level, kind of downplaying the severity and the need for wearing masks, I I think that this spike will probably be larger than what we saw post-Memorial Day. So let's talk about, uh, you mentioned the severity and the long-term implications of, uh, of COVID-19. You even mentioned that um, asymptomatic cases are seeing lung damage from this. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about what we have learned about the long-term damage? We're seeing stories of people still suffering months, you know, months out from, quote-unquote, kind of recovering from it. Some people are actually even taking six weeks or longer to even get out of the hospital, let alone actually recover. And people who are having minimal symptoms are still having cardiovascular symptoms like chest pain that's unexplained and that they didn't have before they had that coronavirus uh, diagnosis. And so it's still something that we're learning about. And major organizations like the American Heart Association are putting together registries to study what those long-term implications are going to be. But what we've learned so far is that there is, even among people who are asymptomatic, there is long-term lung damage. So that can keep people from being able to be as active as they were before or can make them more susceptible to things like tuberculosis or other respiratory viruses that they might encounter going forward. The other thing that I am still hearing, and it surprises me, is um, people are still comparing this to the flu. There are still, I'm still hearing people say it's, it's, it's not any worse than the flu and that the media is blowing this all out of proportion. What, um, can you give us some perspective on that? Is this the same thing as the flu? If we, if no one in the world had had the flu before, it would be the same as the flu. But, but because we have vaccines and people have had the flu before and have some immunity to it, then it is not like the flu because there are people in our population who are not susceptible. They're not going to contract it. But every person who has not had coronavirus, which is the majority of people in the world, is susceptible 
to having coronavirus. And whether they are asymptomatic or symptomatic, they have that ability to infect other people. So we are looking at potential death rates that are like what we saw with the 1918 flu, which was a a novel or new flu strain that quickly traveled around the world. I think people forget that 50 million people died because of that. And that is something that very well could happen. Yes, we have better supportive treatments now, but supportive treatments don't help if you can't get to the hospital bed because everyone else has coronavirus too. So this is unlike the flu because it is it has the potential to overwhelm our hospital system because every single person in the United States who has not yet had it is susceptible and can become infected with coronavirus and give it to others. Um, I want to go back to reopening safely. Um, we we already talked about restaurants, but that also, I mean, it's, it's impossible to eat and drink with a mask on, right? But what about right. re- reopening businesses like gyms, salons, retail, because we are seeing a push to reopen those businesses. Can that be done safely? Gyms absolutely cannot be done safely. And I think nothing can be opened safely, but some can be opened in a more safe way. So, for example, with hair salons, if everyone is required to wear a mask, then that's a little bit better. It is not low risk because people are still going to be talking. We always chat with our hairstylists. So there's no way to make that safe. And there's no way to make, there's even less of a way to make, for example, if you're having a wedding and you want to get your makeup done, there is no way to for a makeup artist to make that session safe because you have to remove your mask for those makeup sessions. So there are some things like having your makeup done and like going to the gym that are really difficult. And I would say to the point of not being worth the risk to be able to make them safe and be able to reopen. That said, I recognize that that is a lot of people's livelihoods. There are some boutique gyms near where I live that I I really want them to be able to open, but I know as an epidemiologist, it's not a good idea because people go to a gym to sweat and to breathe hard and to share the, the different equipment that they don't have in their house. And no matter how much disinfecting you do, especially now that we know about aerosols, there's still a chance that people are going to become infected. So there are some parts of our economy that can't safely reopen. And that's disheartening from just like an individual person level and the business owners. But I would much rather people be safe. Mm -hmm. That brings us to schools. Um, There's a big push to open schools in the fall. And in fact, some colleges have already announced they are opening, but a lot of high schools and you know, elementary schools, junior high schools are trying to figure out uh, how to do this. Is there a way to do this where you can keep kids, you know, teachers, staff safe? So the CDC a few weeks ago, I think, released some updated guidance on what schools can do about reopening. And of course, I've been focused on the university level one. So that's what I'm, I'm going to speak about. But they actually codified them or stratified the risk level. So the lowest risk is fully online virtual instruction, which no one wants to do, but we also don't want to have to bury one of our students or one of our colleagues. The medium risk is putting all of the large classes online. 
Uh, and then the highest risk, of course, is going back in person like we normally would. So with elementary schools, they have specific guidance where all students would be in the same room all day. And either the same teacher would teach them all four subjects or just the teacher would change and they could, everyone would have to wear a mask and they could have a barrier where the teacher was. It's a little bit harder to do with middle school and high school students because they typically are going to their elective classes and they're going to gym and they're, they're walking around the school because this is what preps them for college. So there really is no 100% safe way to do it. Uh, the safest way, according to the CDC, is to go 100% online. But in some states like Florida, because of what the governor just announced, that's not even an option that's available to the schools. Yeah, I, I'm going to admit to you, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. And I know that I had talked to some pediatricians in the American Academy of Pediatrics. I believe they, for mental health reasons, think there needs to be some kind of in-person learning happening in the fall. But I'm hearing all these ideas tossed about from like being partially in school and partially online. And I'm just wondering what's really going to happen in the fall, particularly if the trend that we're seeing now continues. Well, and if we look back historically at the 1918 flu and the 2009, both H1N1, um, there was a spike. Once again, we saw a spike at the beginning of summer, and then it kind of decreased, which is where we thought we would see a decrease in the summer, or we hoped, not thought. But as soon as schools were back in session, whenever schools and universities went back, there was an immediate spike in cases in both 1918 and 2009. So with us starting at this high baseline in the summer, if schools go back in session or when some schools go back in session, we might see exaggerated exponential growth in that it it just with this high baseline level, it, the number of cases would be able to increase so quickly, especially with a in college population where students would be coming from areas of high prevalence to areas of relatively low prevalence. And that's the thing, isn't it? The travel. Right. So if you have students coming from Florida, Arizona, Georgia, to Northeastern schools, then they could very well be bringing coronavirus with them, whether they're symptomatic or not. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, Dr. Johnson, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you were in charge of the pandemic response and reopening things, what would your course of action be? What kind of things would you implement or, or would you just keep everything shut down until we have a vaccine? So I wouldn't keep everything shut down until we have a vaccine. What I would do if I magically was in charge of everything, I would put in a national mask mandate. I would have people regulating moving from state to state, as Canada has done and shown a lot of success in reducing their case numbers. And make sure that we are scaling up testing and contact tracing so that people are being contacted as soon as possible to let them know that they've been around someone who's been infected. So a lot of what our our lag time has been has been amping up testing and increasing the number of contact tracers that we have. Now that we've increased that and we continue to increase each of those, if we could just put those in place systematically and make sure that all states had access to 
each of those resources. If we could do that accompanied by that mask mandate, a nationwide shutdown order or stay-at-home order, I should say, and some regulation of people moving between states, I think that we would be able to get cases to a manageable level before the end of the summer. And we would be able to see some sense of normalcy, but we would still have to maintain masks as a national mandate for until we have a vaccine. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.